You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf fan. Along with me, as always, my winger, Rick, with Squid 5. We'll be joined today by another ex-teammate you're very familiar with, Russ Courtnell. How are we doing today, Squid? I'm doing okay, Mike. I'm... Uh... You know, it's the same as it always is. Uh, again, yep. sleep, watch TV, go to bed. <laughs> Talk to me. No different. <laughs> Talk to you every Thursday, yeah. Exactly. Um, so before we get to Russ, you know what we have to deal with. We have to deal with our old Maple Leafs. And uh, they're going through a rough patch. So is it just that, or is the concern needle now bouncing into the red zone? I, I'm not sure it would be bouncing into the red zone, Mike, but I, I you know, there's obviously some concerns and uh, things that they need to get sorted out. You know, for one, I think, I mean, they need someone to play on the second line on the left side. And That's a given. I think they need to keep Hyman with Matthews and Martyr because he fits in perfect on that line. Um, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know where he's going to play, Gelchenyuk. He could be the answer, perhaps, if he plays the way he's capable of playing, uh, of playing left wing with Tavares and Nylander, I would think. But it depends on where they're going to put him. Well, the way the lineups were today in practice was Thornton, Marner, and Matthews, for some strange reason. Galchenyuk goes with Tavares and Nylander, so he's going to get a shot there. Uh, Kerfoot is back with uh, Mikhaev and Hyman. And Spezza's with Engel and uh, Simmons was practicing on that other side. So, but again, right off the bat, the first question that comes to mind is the obvious. So being the best line the Toronto Maple Leafs have had in the last six games has been that line of Hyman, Mikhaev, and Engel, mm-hmm. and they split them up. And I don't know. I, I, that, that's yeah. a mystery. I don't know if we're watching different games, but it just seems to be an obvious to me to keep that line together. If you're not going to play Hyman where you should be on the number one line, and why are you not playing with the two guys that he was, you know, he was blooming and, you know, they were blossoming really well, the three of them. Yeah, I, I would, uh, I would, I would agree with you hundred percent on that. I mean, if, if they could get someone else to play the left side that, I mean, and Joe can play the left side with those guys, but not, you know, a whole game, not 20 or some minutes a game uh, in that neighborhood, but if they could find someone to play on the left side, on, on one of those top two lines, you know, I, I think that third line is fantastic. And you need a third line like that, especially going into the playoffs. Uh, a third line like uh, uh, them would be the best thing the Leafs could have if going into the playoffs. I, personally, I think they're just not playing very good defensively as a team right now. Mm-hmm. And their goaltending is letting them down a little bit as well. And uh, when you're not playing good defensively, you're giving up those opportunities and your goaltender isn't standing on his head or making those big saves that he's supposed to make, then you're going to have a little bit of trouble. Well, I mean, the two things I'll say to that right off the bat are number one, the Winnipeg Jets are nipping at the heels of the Leafs for first overall in the division. Mm-hmm. They made a big move in dumping a prolific score in Laney, who's a floater, for Pierre-Luc Dubois, 
Now, how would that trade look for the Leafs that they made that trade for Nylander? Dubai, the third line center playing with Tavares. I mean, he would see if nuts and all that sort of stuff, we could, you know, wow. make that type of scenario. But <laughs> secondly, as far as the goaltending goes, Anderson is what he is. He's played four and a half years. He's always, everybody's acting surprised that this is new. Four and a half years. He's a good NHL goalie. Yeah. He's not a great NHL goalie. Nobody's going to give you a number one starter. This is what you have. These are the cards you have. You got to deal with it. Shut up and play. It's either going to be him. It's going to be the new Finnish kid. I won't even attempt to pronounce his name. That poor kid in goal. Uh, and all yeah. camp. one of the three of them play the best goalie. End of story. Move forward. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, if, if Jack Campbell goes back from his injury and, and he's the best goaltender, you got to ride him. And, you know, I mean, you know, whether Freddie is the de facto number one goalie or not, it doesn't really matter. It's like, I mean, I remember when I coached, there was times where, you know, our number one goalie wasn't playing well, our other guy went in. And as long as he was playing well and winning, uh, he played. And uh, that, that's kind of the way I looked at it. Well, that, that's true. And, and, and yet, so, I mean, that aside, that's just something we got to deal with down the road. The players are going to have to play better, number one. And number two, the other thing I would only say and as a final wrap-up to this for my thoughts would be, look, you've acquired depth, use it. You've got Agostino, Brooks, yeah. Boyd, Semyon. I won't even try to pronounce his last name. They're bringing him back from Europe along with Philip Hallander and Dennis Malgan. Robinson is progressing. You've got all these players. There's no need to make a panic move. Everybody's talking about making a move to go for the quarantine, the 14 days and all that. That's all nonsense. The player that you're acquiring is coming, the guy to come in and play with Tavares. 14 days isn't going to make a difference, whether it's April 12th or now. There's still 11 games left after April the 12th. That means you're buying this player or getting this player to help you in the playoffs. Now, you're, you're trying to win a Stanley Cup, yeah. not a President's Cup. So if they're going to make a move, make the right move as best you can, just not for the sake of make a move for quarantine. And you know, Dubas is smarter than that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all I'm going to say to finish off this subject, it could, we could, it could be Buffalo. So it could be worse. <laughs> that is very, very true. Now, speaking of which, here's one. So we'll, we'll watch with interest as we always do. And of course, we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about it again next week. There's always something to talk about with the Leafs. Yeah. And here's one for you. And you can speak to this. Now, I, I read a little piece here this week that suggested or that pointed out that Nathan McKinnon, as of Tuesday, had gone 242 consecutive games with a sh at least a shot on goal. Now, to an average person listening to that, they may not think anything of that. Now, the record is held by Ray Bork at 260. Now, he was a defenseman, and he holds the record for most in the game, by the way, at 19. You had 14 one night and didn't score, but you got three the next game. As a player, just maybe, you know, explain to the listeners how difficult it really is to get a shot on goal in a National Hockey League game. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy uh, to do a game in and game out and continue to do that. But, um, you know, the way I always looked at it as a player uh, myself is that if I, if I didn't have a shot on goal, then I didn't play well. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. And, mm -hmm. you know, if I was playing well, there was nothing was going to keep me from getting one, two, three, maybe four shots on goal or more on any given night. So if I didn't get a shot on goal, I would have to look at the tape and say, you know, and look at things and say, well, you know, wow, I'm not, I'm really not getting into the game. I'm not doing what I should be doing. Therefore, 
I'm not producing any offense because I'm not getting any opportunities. I'm not even getting shots on goal. But it is still tough. I mean, it, 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 people have to realize yeah, like, oh, yeah. this game in and game out, it is very difficult to get a shot on goal. Never mind do it 242 times in a row. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. There, there wasn't too many games, I don't think, that I played that I didn't get a shot on goal. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, uh, you're playing against the best players in the world. And yeah. uh, on any given night, you could go out there and, you, you know, you might even play a good game and not get a shot on goal because it's not that simple. Well, look at the way they, well, all the blocking and all that sort of stuff going on today and deflections yeah. and all that. So, I mean, it, it, it's pretty tough. So, anyway, we'll uh, just we'll watch that with the interest to see how far he carries that one along. So, the other thing I want to point out here is, is touch base. Here's a new one, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's been driving me crazy since the beginning of the season with this notion coming from the media and all these know-it-alls that say the North Division is the weakest in NHL. Well, first off, how can they measure that with any credence? We've talked about this a number of times on the show. So let's, let's, let's do this little exercise that I figured out. Let's look at the leaders against the supposed bottom feeders of each division and see how they've done. Now, we have the course, and we have all these other named diagrams and uh, analytical sayings. So we're going to come up with our own one. This one's going to be called the squilf measure. This is a combination of squid and ultimately fan, okay? And we'll use this one for the rest of the year. So let's just start off. We'll leave Toronto to the end. So Winnipeg, we'll use what the top two teams to show it's not weighted, the two top teams in each division and two bottom teams in each division. Winnipeg against Vancouver has a record of three and two. Against Ottawa, they're four and one for a total of seven and three with 17 wins. Okay? Florida, in their division. Against Detroit, they're four and two. Against Dallas, they're two and one for a six and three record, 19 wins with six of those wins coming against those two. Carolina. 3-1 against Detroit, 4-0 against Dallas. They're 7-1 in total, 7 wins against their 20 wins. Washington against New Jersey, they're 4-0. Against Buffalo, they're 5-1. 9-1. 9 of their 19 wins have come against <clears throat> those two teams. The Islanders are in second place. They're tied with them, roughly with them. They're 5-1 against New Jersey, 6-0 against Buffalo. A lot, this is the team. The Stanley Cup team they're all talking about. 11 of the 19 wins have come against those two doormats. Vegas is 5-0 against San Jose and 4-1 against Anaheim. Nine of their, that gives them 9-1 record. 20 of their wins, 9 have come from those two teams. Minnesota's 2-1 against San Jose and 3-1 against San Am. Five of the 5-2, five, five, five of their 18 wins have come against that. And the team in the weakest division in all of hockey in the world, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they're three and two against Vancouver and three and three against Ottawa for six wins and five losses. So six of their 19 wins have come against these two amateur teams they're playing against. And almost two thirds of their losses have come against these two amateur teams. So stick that in your pipe and smoke at all you experts until we come up with this one again. <laughs> yeah, well, it's... Uh... I never said it was the weakest division. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't even know if I've heard that anywhere. But oh, it's all I mean, you really have you have two teams that everybody considers to be two of the weakest teams in the league in Ottawa and Vancouver. But on any given night, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're capable of beating the best team in the league, and so is everybody else in the National Hockey League. Parity is 
is so big right now that anybody on any given night can beat another team. And I don't care who it is. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and it's, it's just a proven point. So we'll see when playoff time comes around and we'll see where the better, where it all kind of lies. That's what's yeah. going to make it kind of exciting this year. So now we're moving along here and we're, we're getting close. We'll get the rest in a couple minutes here, but just uh, our usual this day in history, March the 20th, 1916, the Portland Rosebuds defeated the Montreal Canadiens in the first game of the 1960 Stanley Cup Challenge. And Montreal came back to win the cup in five games. In 1989 in this day, here's one for you. Paul Coffey became the first defenseman in NHL history to score 100 points in a season with two teams. When he got an assist for his 100th point of the year in a 7-2 win, Penguins win over the North Stars in Minnesota. Not bad. And I think on that note, Squid, I think it's time for us to go and listen to see what Russ has to say. Yeah, absolutely. Bring him on. Okay, so Squid, our guest today played 16 years after being taken seventh overall in the 1983 draft by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Played six years in Toronto, was dealt in one of the most lopsided trades in Maple Leaf history to Montreal, which we'll get into, I'm sure. Played four years before stops in Minnesota, Dallas, Vancouver, New York, finishing in LA, producing wherever he played, representing a candidate at the World Juniors, World Championships. Please welcome Russ Courtnell. Russ. Thanks for joining us today. First off, how are you doing and how are you spending your time during the pandemic? So good. Thanks for having me on. Um, my wife and I and um, one of our kids, we live in uh, Westlake Village in California. And so we've been um, just hanging out here. It's, I know a lot of people have been through a lot um, over the past year and, and some people stuck in climates like where you guys are at. It's been probably tougher than people like us who we can get outside pretty much every day, but we've uh, we've had some good family time. My son, who's now playing against Rick's son in the East Coast Hockey League, he was home <laughs> for a while, and and um, my oldest daughter just got engaged to uh, her boyfriend of seven years. So it's been a it's been a really good family time for us. Uh, and I know a lot of people have suffered or are suffering, but uh, for our family, it's been. Um, We've taken advantage of the time to be together. It's great. No, that's great. It's, uh, I mean, we've had the exact same thing last year when the season was uh, called off. My son came home, spent four and a half months with us, and you know, it was wonderful. It was it, no matter how old they are, when they leave home, you still miss them. It's amazing. You, you're kind of. Yeah. They're growing up in front of you, and you're thinking, "Geez, I can't wait till they go to school." And then when they do leave. <laughs> you missed the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we uh, we're the same. We're a tight family. We've got two daughters and one son, and they're all athletes and all went to college for. And our youngest is going to USC next year on a soccer and track scholarship. So they're all athletes, uh, very competitive, and uh, we have a lot of fun when we're together. And we all love food, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> uh food and wine and i don't know it's just it's fun at our house when we're all together and um and like rick uh we miss them when they're not around so uh, we're going to be empty nesters coming this this summer because our youngest will be going to college but uh we've had her home with us for uh for a while 
Well, the old man set the bar, so let's 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 uh, take a walk through memory lane here and see what you can remember, Rusty. And, uh, so we'll go here. Just, I mean, you grew up in uh, Victoria, BC. So let's talk about your early days playing hockey, ending up at Notre Dame as a hound, and just then your couple of years playing in Victoria, your home city. I was a hockey player. Um, my mom was in sports and my mom really pushed my dad to get us involved in hockey. And it may, as soon as we started skating, I mean, we just fell in love with it. Typical Canadian boys. Uh, anytime we could get on the ice, play in our backyard, in the basement, knee hockey. So totally fell in love with hockey and, and grew up playing in Victoria at the Victoria Racquet Club where Mel Bridgman played before mm -hmm. us. And uh, he obviously went on to have a, a really good career and, and play, drafted by Philadelphia. And Victoria Cougars were in our hometown. And my brother Jeff and I and my uh, younger brother Bruce, all three of us played for the Cougars in the WHL. And before that, I, my dad was born in Winnipeg and went to private school in Winnipeg and then moved to Victoria when he was 16. And he felt like we were soft living in the, the weather, the climate of Victoria, B.C. So he he wanted all of us to spend one year at least in the prairies to get to have a winter under our belt. So my brother went to uh, Pinocchio, Alberta for one year, played uh, Jeff. He played when he's 14. And then mm -hmm. when I was 14, my dad had passed away the year before, but I, I went ended up going to Notre Dame in Saskatchewan when I was 14, stayed home when I was 15 in Victoria and then went back when I was 16. And um I was really fortunate to be able to go there. And uh, my younger brother, Bruce, went there also. My son went there when he was 14. Great school, great, uh, uh, some great life lessons there. And, uh, and then I played in the WHL, got drafted and met Squid. <laughs> 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 he, was our, he was our captain. I mean, I'll never <laughs> forget it being 18 years old and walking in the Squid, the old, that little foyer area, when we walked in the door of the dressing room where we, we, our sticks were and Smokey had the skate sharpener there and, and we'd always uh, congregate there before we'd go out on the ice, but I'm ne I'll never forget. There was uh, Jeff Jackson, our second round pick, Dan Hodgson, our fifth round pick. We're sitting and Todd Gill, no, Todd Gill wasn't there yet. The three of us were sitting on a bench and it was for training camp. And there was Billy DeLego and Rick Five talking. And we were just like, we're all 18 years old. Going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then Boris Selman walked in. And it was like the sea parted. I mean, <laughs> for three Canadian kids who came from all over the place, we all had the same awe effect. To We were just in awe. And that's when I first met Rick, probably the first day I met him. Great. You can follow up on that one. Yeah, so, well, I mean, I remember when you came in, I think you came from the Canadian National Program, correct? Yeah. From the National team? I actually, I came right after the Olympics. I joined the team. So I had training camp. Then I went back to junior, made the world junior team, made the Olympic team, and then turned pro that February of 84. Right, okay. Um, so uh, you came in, and, and at what point, was there a moment or was there a, a, a period of time where all of a sudden you realize that, okay, I am good enough to play with these guys and, and started feeling like comfortable enough that, you know, to say, okay, I'm here. 
I know I can do it and I'm not going anywhere. What happened to me was after the Olympics, I ended up getting called up, played 12 games, and I had some success. I played with you a little bit, and I played with Jimmy Korn. And um, so I felt good, but I obviously was young. And, and so I thought, okay, next year it's going to be better. And then freaking training camp that year, Steve Thomas tripped me on a breakaway. I, I I was out cold, spent the night in the hospital. And then four days later, we played against Quebec and Wilf Paymont elbowed me. And I didn't wake up till I was on the plane. Like I didn't come to, I was, I was awake, but I didn't snap out of it till I was, we were on the plane coming home and this is in training camp. And that year I suffered from post-concussion syndrome and I didn't realize it till about five years ago. So what happened, I got through that year, didn't play a lot and was on the fourth line. And the next year I had a big game. And I think it was against, uh, I had a game in Chicago that was good, but at home I had a coming out game where I had, I don't know, three goals and three assists against Detroit. And that's the moment I went, I belong in the NHL. That I can, I can this is when I knew I was gonna be at least in the league till I was, you know, 28, 29, or play seven, eight years. I don't know what you thought, Rick, when you played, but every summer I would tell, they'd go, how people at home would say, how long do you think you can play for it? I'd say six more years. I'd say that every year until my <laughs> last two. My last two, I went, yeah, maybe I could play another three or four, but that was my standard answer and ended up playing 16. Well, I ended up playing 13, and my answer usually every year was, uh, yeah, probably a couple more at least. You know, you never know. I mean, injuries, whatever. So I would always kind of try to keep it reasonable and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can play a couple more years. Yeah, I ended up playing, well, 14 actually. But uh, uh, you just never know because you don't know what the hell is going to happen, whether you're going to get hurt, whether or not you're going to get, like, like he was rhyming off the teams you played for. I didn't even realize you played for most of those teams. I knew yeah. Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. I didn't know you had played for the Rangers in L.A. Yeah. And where else? Minnesota? Or yeah, Minnesota. We I played there the last year. I got traded from Montreal to Minnesota. And uh, they Norm Green owned the team, and he told me when I got there, he said, don't buy a house. We're moving to Anaheim. And I, and I went, really? And then Disney went – to the league and said we want a team so disney got anaheim and norm green got to pick any city in the country where he wanted to go move the team to because he left he let anaheim or disney have his his place for minnesota to move to so we went he picked dallas so i i played one year in minnesota yeah. two years in dallas and then i got traded to uh, vancouver well, what I want to do, Russ, is I want to go back before you came to Toronto and just, uh, just leading through all of that. You're a Western kid, but there's a couple of questions in here you can tie it all in. First off, leading into your draft year, what kind of buzz was going into the draft day for you? Were any teams kicking tires? Yeah. Did you do any interviews? And what did you know when you finally got selected by Toronto? What did you actually know about the Toronto Maple Leafs and the city? Well, interesting enough, I, I 
had played Notre at Notre Dame when he was 16. I made the Victoria Cougars when I was 17. My brother was an overage and we, we just started clicking like brothers do. And I, I started playing well as a rookie and I was playing with two, uh, Stu Kulak, uh, who was drafted by Vancouver, my brother who, who was undrafted. And, and so I, I was feeling real confident playing with two older guys. And then we're on the bus going somewhere and the hockey news, uh, the hockey news was like the hockey Bible back then. And, okay. and so we, somebody passed me the hockey news and it, it said on, I don't know what page, central scouting first round rating. And I was rated like 18th and I went, Oh my God. And, and that was my moment of, I think I'm going to get draft. I'm going to get drafted into the NHL. The next month I was rated 16th or 15th. The next month I was rated 14th. And then finally I was rated around 10th or 11th at the end. So the, all that year, there was a lot of buzz about me going in the first round and I kept moving up the ladder. And then I broke my wrist at Christmas, right before Christmas. We had a 10 day break. So I didn't miss any games for 10 days. I came back in three weeks, maybe. And it was too early. I struggled a little bit. And then as my wrist got stronger, I started playing better again. I ended up with 97 points and I don't know how many games I missed. I think I missed 10 games total. And then I had a really good playoff and uh, I grew up. My favorite team was the Toronto Maple Leafs. My dad quit playing pro hockey because his rights were owned by Detroit, not Toronto. So he played one year in their farm system, System, I think in Cleveland. He quit and we'll start working in the mill because he wanted to play for the Leafs. Every Saturday night, we watched Hockey Night in Canada. My dad made a stand for the anthem downstairs in front of the television. <laughs> and all we did was cheer on the Maple Leafs. And my favorite players were Keon, Sittler. And then my all-time favorite player was Boris Salmi. And... Um, and so getting drafted to Toronto was, was a dream for me. It was unbelievable. And the first two people I met, they flew me from Victoria to Vancouver to meet Floyd Smith and Dick Duff at the airport. And what a big deal for a kid from Victoria. They, they bought me a plane ticket. I flew over to the Vancouver International Airport at my lunch hour. I'm still in high school. I meet them for half an hour. And they go, okay, great. And then I get back on the next plane and I flew back and I went, I got the last two classes in high school in the afternoon. And I told everybody, I just flew, no one believed me. I said, the Toronto Maple Leafs just flew me over to meet them, these two guys. And I couldn't believe how short they were because I was only 5'10", 5'11". And I was looking down at Dick Duff and Floyd Smith. I'm like, and these guys played in the NHL? <laughs> and then I started. Me. I was going to say, how was your first go? Keep going with that. And how was your first camp like going into the, you know, you talked about seeing Rick and those guys, how did the players treat you guys your, your first uh, well, go around? Rick, Rick will relate to this because um, Toronto, I don't know if it was every team, but your first training camp, you're in with all the other draft picks and the guys from the minors. You're not in the main dressing room and you get a number that is a football number so i was like number 54 or something and and uh they told me dan maloney had told me at the draft he was their assistant coach mike nicolick was their head coach and they said look come to camp 
but you're going, we're, we're sending you back to junior. We think you need one more year. So I went to camp knowing I was going to get sent back. So I was pretty relaxed. Like I, there was no, no pressure, no stress of making the team. Cause they already told me I wasn't going to. And so I went to camp. It was, you know, I had a decent camp, I think, but it really, I, there's no, the other, the memories I guess I have were two a days playing in sweaty gear and Rick, who was the guy that ran us through warmups before we went on the ice. And he used to say, get on the blocks, get on the blocks. Well, <laughs> Freddie, I think his name was. They were, he was an, an old, old wrestler. Army, <laughs> an old uh, wrestler and an old army guy that was friends with Harold Ballard. Yeah. I think his name was Fred. And yeah, he used to have these wooden, Blocks and he, oh my God, it was like, so I think one day I, I remember we uh, we uh, got a a girl from one of the strip clubs to come and my God she was dressed pretty scantily and we were all doing exercises with her up there before Fred got there so that when Fred walked in he just freaked out <laughs> kicked her out of there. <laughs> He said, okay, get on the blocks, guys. <laughs> I was gonna tell that story and and what we remember, it was a it was a joke against kind of the young guys. So you guys, the older players had brought this girl in. She was dressed like an aerobic instructor. And then she started going, Oh, it's hot in here. And she started taking her clothes off. And all of us young guys are like, What the heck? Oh my God, she's gonna take her clothes off. <laughs> and we were just, and these guys were laughing at us and we were, we weren't in on the joke. And then when the old boy showed up, he was pissed. He was like, get out of here. He was oh, that thick accent. <laughs> get the hell out of here. That was funny. I'll never forget. I'll never forget that. I mean, stuff, you don't stuff you, uh, some stuff you don't remember and st some stuff you'll never forget. And that's one of the things I remember as a young kid. Well, you already mentioned it. The one thing that I've never forgotten is the fact that we would go two days in yeah, training yeah. camp. And our, our, our camps were like two, two and a half weeks <laughs> long before we even played an exhibition game. And I, I'll never forget, I, I believe you were still there when we had our training camp in Belleville when Danny was yeah. the head coach. And we had to do laps in that Olympic-sized rink and, and down and backs and, oh, my God. I, I, that was a year after Terry Martin had gotten Salmonella in New York. And uh, the next year, he, he, he couldn't get through training camp. Uh, and it was just, it was cool. Yeah. That's where I got knocked out by Stevie Thomas in, uh, in Belleville. But that, that those training camps were brutal. I mean, those... Oh. To, you'd have uh, skate, bag skate, play. There'd be fights. Guys are brawling. Go have lunch. Go back to the rink. Your gear's soaking wet. Your underwear's soaking wet. I mean, it was it was so it was so brutal. And and we just you know we skated and skated and skated. And I think we we were starting to come into camp at that time in in somewhat good shape. But I think it was left over from what the years you heard where guys would go to camp to get in shape. So we were kind of the beginning of 
or we were still at the end of those crazy two days and thank God they got rid of those, man, those were brutal. Oh. While brutal. the old days, there were six, not while weeks, I, six not weeks. While I was, not while I was playing though. <laughs> yeah. Well, no so kidding. now Rush, you meet the team finally after the Canadian national program leads to yeah. go the next year. What was the biggest adjustment you found playing pro from junior hockey besides the fact that it was so much quicker or was that it? Yeah, I was fast as a player, but man, yet you had to have your head on a swivel and the game was really quick. And then the size of the players, I mean, I was, I mean, I didn't start shaving until halfway through my freaking career. I mean, these guys were that anybody who had a beard, I thought they could, could have been my father. I mean, they, they it was, I was a, a young, young adult you know, slash older kid playing against these adults that were just had met. I mean, they all had man strength and I was still developing. I started out my career. I was 170. I finished at 190. And so those for till I hit about 180, man, I was just, I was getting knocked around pretty good. And it, you, you could hook and hold back then. So I really had to use my speed to, to get away from the big, strong, guys that I was playing against but I'd just say the quickness of the game the quick quick decisions having your head on a swivel and and then just learning learning to be a pro you know learning learning how you got to play on the road like you got to play hard on the road you got to play hard at home you got to and as time went on I got used to the travel and used to the life of being an NHL professional hockey player and it does take time. Now, I was going to say, you got to play with Squid for a bit, and you guys were enjoying some good success. But you as a guy coming in here, and some of these guys you talked about, you know, you're looking around at these guys because these are guys you're watching on TV a couple of years before and all of that. Now, so there's a star factor syndrome involved in all of this sometimes with kids. Did you feel a little added pressure to get him the puck because he was a bigger name on the team? And I'll tell you, it was funny. Now, here's a just to... So it's not totally serious. Jeremy Roenick told us that when he went to Arizona and Keith Tuchuk, Walt Tuchuk, oh, yeah. as they call him, pulled him aside before his first game and said, JR, and JR was well in his you know, career then. He said, for you to have success here, you have to remember two things. Number one, get Walt the puck. Number two, get Walt the puck. And then he walked away. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I... I definitely wanted to get Rick the puck because he was uh, in, he was scoring back-to-back 50 goal seasons. Those first two years I was there. So I wanted to get the assist. I was a playmaker more than I was a goal scorer, but that was one thing for me being a centerman, right-handed centerman. It was natural for me to go to the left. And my brother was a left winger and he and I really clicked and, you know, the, when we got into the offensive zone, that's when I would tend to get the puck to the right hand, uh, the right winger. So that was, that was an adjustment for me that having to really try to look to my right for Rick, because on the left side was left side was Jimmy crack corn and he couldn't, he couldn't score if the barn door was uh, the goal besides the goal. So no, I, but that was our line when we played a little bit together. I mean, we didn't play a lot, but that was who we, we're we're lined up uh they put us on a line together and the the funny story i have is about playing with jimmy and and rick 
were in Chicago and I played hockey. I played sports. I didn't really watch sports growing up. I didn't have the, I watched Saturday night, hockey night in Canada, watched the first period and then I'd be playing knee hockey in the back. But I watched the Leafs, I watched the Habs and that's about it. And I didn't know much about Ben Wilson and the Chicago Blackhawks playing with Rick we, and Jimmy Crack Corn. We're in the corner after the whistle and Ben Wilson cross checks me from behind. I turn around, punched him right in the face and I'm not a fighter. And he went freaking crazy. Jim Corn, we get back to the bench and Jimmy's going, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? And the rest of the game, Jim is trying to settle down Ben Wilson. And every time we played him, Ben was out to kill me. But that was my one of my memories of playing with Rick and uh, Jim was I punched Ben Wilson in the face, which was not wise. <laughs> no, that's not a very wise thing to do. I can remember going <laughs> no. around him, I don't know how many times, scoring goals. And when he, he came up to it and he would say, you, do, you go around me and you score again. And the next time, I will spear you right in the face. And yeah. the, the problem with with him was he met it. Yeah. Like he he wasn't kidding. <laughs> he, he would he would have no problem spearing you in the face, Ben Wilson. It was after, unbelievable. After that incident with me, for the rest of his career, he would he would just give me the corner, dump it in the corner, and he'd go, go get it. And he would just, like, cross-check me, <laughs> hit me in the back of the head, spear me for the rest of my career. And then finally, I don't know, Rick, do you remember when Wendell Clark beat him up at center ice in Toronto? Oh, yeah. And Ben was hanging on, and Wendell started – I'd never seen this in a hockey fight. Wendell dropped down and just started hitting him in the kidneys. And every time he hit – he hit him in the right side and the left side and, and just the air coming out of Ben was, it was unbelievable. And then that next day in the newspaper, Ben says, I'm too old for this stuff. And that, I don't, I don't remember him playing too much after that fight. It was funny because that, that's when, I knew Wendell was tough. And I mean, obviously we saw that, but with that night when he fought Ben and, and I think, I believe it was right in front of our bench, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. And sitting there watching and I'm thinking, holy kid, this kid is good. <laughs> He's really tough. Well, I was going to say now, speaking of Wendell, Russ, you and Lehman and him all have this bond with the hounds from Notre yeah. Dame. Talk about that and then playing together. Well, that was phenomenal. Um, Wendell coming to Toronto, uh, it, it it was just so great. He, and both of them, people got to remember, they're drafted as defensemen and they both ended mm -hmm. up playing forward. And so I, I just tell people I was so bad defensively that they put four defensemen out there with me. Wendell was <laughs> on left wing and Gary was on right. But um, it was great. We're young. We're, um, I'm at, we're all a year apart in age. And, um, you know, we all went to school together. So we had this common bond from being at the school. Uh, Wendell and Gary weren't there at the same time, but I was at there with both of them at different times. And we, Wendell and I played together for a year. So it was really exciting. And then um, I knew more about Wendell than anybody else because I played with him. I didn't realize how freaking tough, how great a fighter he was. Because in midget hockey, you can't, you know, you fight, you get kicked out. And he never, ever fought in the dorms. And I asked him about 
after he started fighting in the NHL and, and obviously in junior, I said, Wendell, why did you never fight at school? And he goes, because my mom, um, was just, I think his mom was a school teacher at the school he grew up at. And she, he said, if I ever got in a fight at school and then I'd have to have my dad, I'd have to be home meeting my dad in the barn that night. And I never wanted to go in the barn with my dad because he's a big son, a big, tough guy. And so he never fought outside of uh hockey he always fought on the ice and so i never i never saw that till he came to toronto i'd heard about it in his draft year but i'd never seen it and then when i saw it i mean a couple times oh. i almost puked i was seriously it was like a fist going through a watermelon when he hit guys he hit him that freaking hard and split guys open uh he beat up mcguire kevin mcguire in training camp he hit him three times and cut him for 27 stitches, and I almost puked. It was that gross. Well, didn't he fight Ty Domi once in training camp, and they actually counted the punches? I think it was like 23 times he hit Domi for, before Domi even threw a punch. I, was, I don't think that was Wendell. I think that was Chris McCray. And was it that was Chris a McCray? Rookie. Yeah, because, because Ty respected Wendell so much. Right. I mean, he, he, Ty used to sit on Wendell's doorstep and wait for him to come home. I mean, he idolized Wendell. There's no way they had a fight. So that, that fight was now, Chris Stone, Chris uh, McCray. Chris McCray. Yeah. So speaking of Wendell, I remember him, him and I were at a, an event here in Toronto and we, we were just talking. I said to him, I said, how, how great was it in Toronto in like 92, 93 when you went to the conference finals? It must have been. And he said, yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible, he said, in the city of Toronto. But he said, you know what? He said, in 85 and 86, we had better teams in Toronto, but we just didn't have the management or the coaching to get us over the hump. And I thought, you know, that's pretty crazy. And then I went back and I looked at the rosters and he was right. We had a better team in 85 and 86. And then well, we didn't have a, a manager or an owner that would pay for a good general manager. And we didn't have a general manager that could pay for a great coach. Otherwise, I think if we had to stay together and kept that group together, I think we could have done some damage, you know, within three, four years. Yeah. We had a really good team and we were just clicking. And then we came together in that playoff. We, we, we swept Chicago. That was when the first round was best of five. We swept them in three. We, uh, we lost in seven to St. Louis. And Rick, you had, a, you're, you had a bad hand or maybe even a broken wrist or something. I can't remember. Ribs. ribs. Oh, no, that was my, 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 my uh, no, that was uh, the year I tore the cartilage off my uh, rib cage. It was in Detroit. Seventh game. It was in Detroit. I couldn't play the seventh game. Oh, that was the year um, after. That would have been the year after then, because we we yeah. lost to Detroit in seven the year after. We beat. Uh, that's when I had a broken yeah. wrist. But right, we well, had I mean, a really good I team. Thought, yeah, but with the right manager that can make that you know, trade deadline deal to get you over the hump or the right coaching. Um, I, you know, I think we could have been a really, really good hockey club. Well, did every year at the deadline, they would trade for, they'd make a big trade. 
even when they were as good as they were to get them over the hump. They got, you know, they got uh, my brother and, and Ranford for Andy Mogu was the backup one year. They got uh, uh, Kent Nielsen played one year. They, they always traded for these important um, people that were usually veterans that would help them. And, and they were making those deals that you're talking about, Rick, even when they were the best team in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, unfortunately, we, we, I think they were trying to build with the, the young guys. And, and, but that was too bad when Dan, when they didn't re-sign Dan Maloney, um, it yeah. just started falling apart after that. Yeah. They let him go. Of that, number of guys have mentioned that, that Maloney. Yeah. That, I think that was a bad move when they, he wanted two years and they would only give him one. So he said, okay, well, I'm out of here. And he went off to Winnipeg and got his two year deal. Yeah. And, and he was really kind of becoming, uh, how do I put it? I, it wasn't a, I mean, it wasn't all about systems or anything, but then he was really starting to understand what it was like to communicate with us and, and yeah. kind of get through to everybody on, on whatever level he needed to. And then all of a sudden, you're gone. You're right, Rick. I mean, he started respecting us more, you know, and we started respecting him. And I'll never forget, like, he, the, our second line was Mirko Freacher, Inachuk, and Padovni. And he would just let those guys play. And they started, yeah. you know, doing their own. They, they were a great second line to you. And then we were the third line. And, uh, and we had a great checking line with Dan Dow, who was a freaking great all-round player. You know, he could play offense yeah. or defense. And Tubby Terrian. And, 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 and uh, Dan was really coming into his own. Like, he was actually enjoyable to be around by the end. Like, when he was an assistant yeah. in the first year, he was just finding his way. And he was, <laughs> he was being a hard ass when, you know, probably didn't need to be. But by the end, I really enjoyed playing for him. And I think it was... He was just growing into becoming an NHL coach and yeah. Winnipeg got him when he was, you know, when uh, he had, he had gotten through all that, the growing pains of becoming a, a head coach and, and they got him. And I remember he wanted 180,000 and I think Harold offered him 140,000. And so for the 40 grand, we lost him. Something like that. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that's Harold. Well, I, that, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, uh, what the, Harold threw around money like uh, there were manhole covers, for Christ's sakes. I mean, like, <laughs> I, mean, I remember my first contract, and then I scored the 350 goal seasons in a row. So I think I was at 70, and I, I went all the way up to 180. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh boy, did I ever hit the jackpot, right? And I'm thinking, Imagine what that would be like today or, you know, even 15 years after uh, I did that. I mean, imagine you, I went up $110,000, I think, for the first year of the contract. So, but anyway, that was Harold. Well, I was going to say, Russ, night, you're cruising along. Things are going well. The team's starting to come together. There is a foundation being built, but the 1988 comes along. You personally get off to a bit of a slow start. The team got off to a little bit of a better start. You're now expected to be a producer. The Leafs are being accused of not being tough enough. The fingers are being more pointed at you because you're not producing at the, po- the level they expect you to. So I'm sure a couple of things here. 
you must have been hearing a little bit about this. Um, was the pressure starting to, were you starting to feel it? And this little sort of circus atmosphere of Toronto was just finally starting to get to you. And then of course the trade happens. What it really came down to is Brof didn't like me and I didn't like him. And so he, he just didn't put me with the right players and That's right. then sit and then just said, he's not producing. And he had the media in his back pocket, every road trip, mm -hmm. he's buying them drinks. They love Brof cause he'd buy him free meal. And, and so, you know, he, and he was a character and he was always willing to, you know, he never saw a mic he didn't like. So they loved him. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he, he just, you know, put me in a position where I couldn't succeed. And then, and then he sat me out and I was like, are you kidding me? And, uh, I'd never been sat out before. And so I, I said, you know, I went in and went, fuck you. And yeah. he laughed at me and he, he, he just sat there and he laughed at me and that's it. Never, no response, nothing, not like you're playing shitty. And he knew, knew he probably knew then he, he knew what was going to happen and the team was playing well. Yes. Uh, the team was off to, I think when I got traded, we were seven, four and one or something like that. And it was a really good start mm -hmm. without me doing anything and without me playing. And I, I think he sat me out three games. And so uh, there was no rumors. It was just, um, it happened and everybody was shocked. He could, I remember we were up at North York oh, practicing at the practice rink and, and uh, Gunner, our trainer, came in with a little piece of paper rolled up and says, go call this number. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> Gord Stellick and he gave me a pen or a pencil. So I called Gord and he goes, hey, Russ, I was the first guy to welcome you. I wanted to be the last guy to say goodbye. Uh, we traded you to Montreal. Uh, here's Sir Smart's number. I'm writing it down. I'm like shaking. <laughs> And I, I call collect, hey, Sir Savard. And he goes, you know, we're so excited in the big, thick accent, French accent. And I'm just like, I don't know what to think. I am just like, oh my God, is this real? It was like a dream. And then he said all this stuff, which I barely heard. And then he said, what number do you want? And he goes, I go, what numbers are available? And he goes, six, 29. 42, 44, 40, like, because they're all freaking retired. <laughs> so I'm thinking about taking 49 because I wore nine in Toronto. And in, in Montreal, they had this thing about numbers. They want players of, to, they want to pass on their numbers to similar players. So he had already made up his mind. I should be number six, like Pierre Mondu. He compared me to Pierre Mondu. And so I go, wow, oh, I don't know. I'm thinking about this number, that number with a nine in it. And he goes, how about six? He goes, it's an upside down nine. <laughs> I go, okay, I'll take six. <laughs> I'll take six. That makes sense. He goes, you're just like Pierre Mondu. You play just like Pierre Mondu. And then I, you know, I got to meet Pierre and he was so, Pierre Mondu was so excited. I was wearing his number. It was awesome. And, uh, Anyways, I went off to Montreal and it took me a little while to get going there. I was out of shape. And then I got going and, and uh, they switched me from center to right wing, which at that point, after what I'd been through in Toronto with Brophy, I was like, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to do whatever they freaking tell me. And, um, and I, I ended up starting to have success in the second half of the season. 
I really, I, I didn't have many goals in the first half. And I remember to, I, I was out with Shane Corson and Mike Keane for lunch. And I said, I'm going to end up with, I'm going to score 20 this year. And they looked at me like I was nuts. Cause I think I had four at Christmas, four or five goals. And they looked at me like, yeah, right. You're not going to get 20. I ended up with like 21, I think, or 23. And then I had a really good playoff and a few good years there. Well, I was going to say, did you, well, now, I, did you ask the question who you got traded for? And when you found out, what was the reaction? You must have thought, oh, my God, like, what, what has this come to? Everybody had that reaction. And I was in hell with John Brophy. I was so happy. I could have cared less who they traded. <laughs> like, and everybody made a big deal about it. And they still, to this day. Absolutely. And it was a lifeline for me. And I, I was more worried about me and, and being able to stay in the NHL because I, the way I was going, it wasn't good. So I, I really didn't, it didn't bother me at all. I mean, it, it just, you know, it really didn't, it didn't phase me at all. Well, what I was thinking, Russ, on well, those lines was just that, that, you know, if I stoop this low in my career that I'm being traded for this, this guy, I better pick my socks up and start playing better. And it looks like you did. But I didn't put any weight into that because I knew how much Brophy loved the tough guy. It was more yeah, John was getting the player he wanted versus, and he was getting rid of the player he didn't. And I didn't, maybe I was so young. I was 23. I didn't even think like that. Like <laughs> I, I, I went there with confidence of having success. I led the Maple Leafs in scoring one year and um, I'd had some success. And so I knew I could do it because I'd already proven it. Yeah. And I felt like I was getting the raw end of the stick. So maybe now the way you put it, I probably should have thought, oh boy. <laughs> but I, I, I was in a, that's why I said I kept my mouth shut my first year there because I was in a, I had been in a bad place with John. I didn't want to get there with Pat. Well, Squid, how did, the, hey, how, did the room, how did the room react to that? Well, I wasn't there. I, I was gone by then. Oh, were you gone by then? Uh, but I remember... Yeah, I was in uh, Chicago. Oh, you were gone. You were gone. And uh, well, when I heard that trade, I, it was I always said to somebody that asked me about it. I said, "Well, I said that's just a classic John Brophy move." I said, "I played for John in Birmingham and in Toronto," and I said, "There's certain guys if if he doesn't like the way you're playing or he just doesn't like you for some reason." He's going to be like that on you. And, and he loves his – Davey Gorman was another guy in Birmingham. He was like that with Davey, and Davey was a great player. But he would bench him, and he would say, I don't want you handling the puck. I want you to dump it in. I don't want you to come into the middle. I don't – you know, and poor Davey was a hell of a player. But as soon as I saw that, I went, that, that's a classic John Goldie move because he wanted a tough guy, and – he didn't like Russ for whatever reason, and he sat you out, I, which I couldn't understand. But that—that's just John. That's the way he was. Well, he, he took yeah. it away from Wendell Clark, number one. So that right away, you know, put a big hole in your game. Yeah. 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 Well, Wendell was injured. That's when he started having his back problems the year before. So Wendell wasn't playing when I got. Uh, I don't think Wendell was in the lineup. Man, maybe he was, but I'll, I'll tell you some of those stories about John, like he, he called Pratt, you know, his practices you'd think were over and then John would get all fired up and we'd start getting bag skated again or whatever. So 
yeah. Gloria was injured and we had we had put a hot tub in the in the um dressing room in Toronto and we'd all get in there we call it the hot stove we'd all sit in the hot tub and talk and tell stories and and um you know if the young guys were out the night before the old guys would want to hear what the hell they were up to because they're all married <laughs> we were single and anyways uh I practice is called so I shot a few pucks I go take my gear off I go I'm in the hot tub with Boria and I hear click 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 and Boria looks at me and goes oh my god it's broke he he came off he, he saw me leave I got undressed quick I got in the hot tub and he goes, we're about to start fucking power play practice. And you're in here having a goddamn executive uh, uh, hot tub with this fucking old bastard. <laughs> what the hell are you doing in here? And he just starts giving me shit. And Boreas just shaking his head going, oh, my God, I can't believe you left. He, I said he called practice. But as soon as he saw me leave, he went, oh, I'm going to have the power play work. And then I and that's the kind of shit he would do. And then one other story I have about him. There's a college kid. He couldn't stand college players because he thought they weren't tough. And so he had one in, in the minors when he coached in Montreal. And I don't know this guy's name, but his parents fly from wherever to Halifax to, to watch them play. And he dresses the kid, but doesn't play him one shit. He goes, and he's one of his better players. He goes up to Brof the next day. He goes, you know, you didn't play me. What, what's wrong? He goes, nothing. He goes, well, my parents flew all the way here to watch me play. He goes, are you going to play me tonight? He goes, as soon as they leave, you'll be playing again. <laughs> they, they never, he went, went and told his parents, he goes, you're not, he's not going to play me until you guys leave. And that's the kind of shit Brooke <laughs> did to people he didn't like. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, well, he, he, he was a beauty. He is a beauty. Uh, well, I was going to say, you touched on it, Russ. Now, I was going to say, coming to Toronto from out west, uh, I was going to say this one tonight, but we walk, you walked right into it. We'll go right into the Montreal one after this. As a young single guy going out, you guys obviously had some fun. You guys were, you got recognized. I mean, after a while, though, how did you deal with it all? Because, I mean, you probably couldn't go anywhere without being recognized in those days. So, I mean, how was it? But you must have had some fun, too, though. It was so much fun. And, and Toronto... Toronto was interesting back then. Not a lot of people lived downtown, and especially our age. Mm-hmm. So we would go out to Mississauga or we'd go near the colleges and stuff. And I'll tell you, we were we would go to this bar and they'd have a dance contest. And um, it was in Scarborough, Scarborough, I guess. Scarborough, Scarborough. or what was Scarborough. the east east side of Toronto? What's the east tribe? Well, east side Scarborough. There's Scarborough. Yeah, Scarborough. The okay. Scarborough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was this bar and they had this dance contest. So we went and Wendell won it. And I'm telling you, Wendell can't <laughs> dance. <laughs> That's how popular we were. But we had fun. I know, it was Todd I know. Gill, it was Steve Thomas, Todd Gill, Jeff Jackson, Wendell Clark, myself, and uh, and Dan Hodgson. And those were some fun, fun times. We, we Thank God there was no fun. phone cameras in those days. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, we, we rented a, a limo. New Year's Eve. I'll just tell this one last story. We rented a limo New Year's Eve. We put beer in there and we were just going to drive around town because the next day we played the Montreal Canadiens. So we knew we couldn't go out. 
but we wanted to go see the city. I don't know, Dan Hodgson came up, let's rent a limo, put a bunch of beer in it. We'll just drive around town and just be part of the action, but no one will see us. So we go, we just, we ran out of beer. We got more beer. We ran out of beer. We got more beer. And, and uh, Motor City Smitty's wife found out and she phoned us and gave a shit the next day. We played the Montreal Canadiens. Jeff Jackson was in the limo. He got first star. I was in the limo. I got second star. And I think Dan Hodgson was third star because we were so scared that we were going to get in trouble because we had rented this limo and drank beer, maybe a little bit too much beer the night before the game. <laughs> now you had- well, back, back ahead, then, that wasn't really frowned, up, frowned upon that, that badly as long as you played hard the next day, played guilty, yeah. whatever you want to call yeah. it. But I yeah. imagine you spent a few nights at the Madison Avenue pub. Oh, jeez. More than likely. I, but that became popular after I left because Clarkie lived up the road and he started hanging out at the Madison Avenue pub. And um, he was the one that put it on the map. I mean, people oh, okay. went there to meet Wendell. So I went a few times with Clarkie, but it was it was after I'd been traded that I, uh, that I, I heard about this. Madison Avenue pub and how, how much fun Wendell had there. He, he, uh, he enjoyed himself there for sure. Now, so you end up leaving Toronto, you go to Montreal, you go from one hockey hotbed to another hockey hotbed. How was the reception from the players? And uh, I'll just tell you, Danny Dew told us when he left Montreal, one of the things about the organization, he, he said half these guys probably didn't even know his name. He wasn't playing against Trinity Toronto. All the senior guys in the team and the big names, all wanted to give him a proper send off and took him out for dinner. Now you've had some big names still there, big leadership in Robinson, Patrick Waugh, yeah. Guy Carboneau, Bob Ganey, and so on. How was the transition for you? Did they make it as seamless as it seemed? They were great. And my first road trip um, was a five game road trip out West. And I, my roommate was Bob Ganey. And I think they do did that with a lot of new players just to kind of learn the ropes. And um they couldn't have been nicer. Larry Robinson drove me to the airport the first day I was there to go on the road with them. Um, Chris Chelius was a young guy, hung out with Chris a lot. Um, we had Bobby Smith, Matt Naslin, you know, we had Patrick Waugh, Craig Ludwig, on and on and on. Uh, it was a phenomenal team, Guy Carboneau and Mike McPhee. And uh, I just, I felt like I was 18 again because I was this young guy with all these older <laughs> players. And, um, and they and I kind of got treated like a rookie too. A couple times I had to say, "Hey, I've been in the league five years, guys. Like, relax." <laughs> and and especially to Pat Burns, he rode me like I was a rookie. It was unbelievable. I was like, "God, did these guys not see that I played before?" But it was so much fun. We were we were a really good team. It was us in Calgary that year fighting for the President's Trophy. Uh, uh, Calgary and us in the finals. They beat us. Um, and it was just a, it was a phenomenal first year for me. And then all of a sudden, boom, all the old guys left or got traded and or retired. And then we were a young team again, and it was start of a rebuild and we were still good, but we weren't the team we were the year before. Well, a couple of the guys I was going to say to you, Russ, you mentioned, uh, one. Hold on, Mike. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to go back a little ways uh, to a time where, Obviously, the NHL players did not play in the Olympics, but you had an opportunity to play for Canada in the Olympics. And 
I always wondered what that would be like because I, I never got to play in the Olympics, got to play in the World Championships, World Juniors. Well, what was it like to play for Canada in the Olympics? Experiences of my hockey career, um, the opening ceremonies, 55,000 people. Um, when you back then, we would march th through the stadium in single file and uh, single file, and it was just like a military march. Now it's more casual and fun. But it was an amazing first experience. And then being in the Olympic Village with these athletes from all over the world. And then every game, uh, all the all your teammates, meaning the Olympic teammates from row, uh, from skiing and figure skating and whatever sport was there, they'd come cheer you on and you become this tight knit group from your country. And, and you're now you're cheering on other athletes and and winning in the in your your flag being risen and, and the anthem and, oh my God, it was so amazing. I just loved every minute of it and going to Sarajevo and having that experience. And unfortunately we lost the bronze medal to uh, Sweden to nothing. And um, that was, that would have been unbelievable if we had won the bronze because back then it was red army, Russia and the Czechs yeah. came, they won the gold and silver, but we had a chance, and uh, it was a great, great experience. Well, you got to experience it anyway. So, yeah. But I want to go back to Montreal again. Now, you, you had some good times in Toronto, and I'll go into Montreal with the guys. A couple, one guy you mentioned already, a couple of the characters in that team, Shane Corson, Chris Chelios. Yeah. I guarantee you that these guys must have got along with you famously. And the other guy I want to bring up, you can probably have this story on, every guy always does is Claude Pepe Lemieux. The intensity in this guy, like yeah. there's no off switch on or off the ice. So speak to yeah. those three guys. You must have some stories. Um, great teammates. Uh, Pepe is a guy you don't like playing against, but you like having him on your team and, and just full of energy. What you see is what you get. He's just, he's an emotional guy. And, um, and, and obviously was a great player. Shane, same, just a, a really good player, tough as nails. Mike Keen, I didn't realize how tough Mike Keen was until he had a couple mm -hmm. fights with some big dudes. And one was uh, Kennedy, I think, in Winnipeg and right in front of our bench. And Mike's like 5'9", maybe 5'10". And he he was punching upwards. And it was unbelievable, kind of a Wendell Clarkish type fight. Fun guys, lots of entertainment. Um, Brian, uh, I remember Brian Scrudlin and Shane and Mike Keen were in, um, and this was got, got into the press, so I can tell the story, but they're walking out of a bar in Winnipeg and these two big, huge guys are pushing, beating these girls up outside. So they step in and say, hey, leave, leave these uh, girls alone. The one guy hits um, Shane or, so Shane or Mike, no, hit Mike Keen over the head with his cane, split him open, and then Shane beat the living shit out of him. Keener beat the shit out of the other guy, and Scrudlin was in there, and it just snowed. It just stopped snowing, and there was blood everywhere, and uh, the only guy who was cut on our side was Keener, but the other guys, they just decimated, and uh, we had them, they got thrown in jail, and uh, these guys ended up being pimps for these two girls. They were prostitutes and they were beating them up over money. And um, 
And then somebody, a witness saw and came to their defense and said, no, no, these guys were helping these girls out. So they, they got off, but the next day, uh, Pat Burns was given a shit and these guys roll in and he's like, you can't do this. Montreal Canadians, we can't have this. We can't do this. I can't. And, and Scurry just stood up and goes, if it happened again tonight, I would do the exact same thing. Those guys deserved it. And Lee Keener and Shane are my freaking teammates. And if they're in trouble again, and if it happened tonight, I don't care if I go back to jail, I'd get right back in there again. And oh, it was, it was uh, in the media for a while, but it, it went away. But those guys were, they were a lot of fun. And Montreal was Ch- a ton of fun. And what about Chelios? Chelly was great. Chelly, like I was, I was single and, and, and Chelly was married and had just started a family. And so he never went out in Montreal, but when I go out, go out in Montreal, it's late. And so when we went on the road, I was like happy to stay in and get some sleep and Chelly go, come on, come on. I, I can't go out when we're at home. I've got the baby and married. And so, you know, let's go out, let's go. Out. So we go out and Chelly would walk over to me. He'd see me getting tired. And he'd hand me an espresso shot with Bailey's in it and goes, you're looking, you're looking like you're a little tired. Here's a pick me up. I don't want you to go home. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun with Shelly. He was great. He, uh, I lived at his house um, during the finals that year. I, my lease was up and he moved me into his house with his wife, Tracy, and they took care of me. Shelly's a great guy. I see him once in a while down here in L.A. He has a beach house not too far from me, and I, he plays golf out here with Gretz and McEnroe. So I see him here at Sherwood Country Club once in a while. And Pat Burns' relationship there—he was hard on you, I'm sure. Yeah, he was hard. He was—he wasn't—he was tough on me, and he—he uh, he didn't like me. I didn't really like him. He was uh, just starting to coach in the NHL and finding his way. And Pat was. I don't know if he just didn't like the way I played, didn't like me personally, but it, we, it was, it, it wasn't a great relationship. Um, I, I tell people, I walk down the hallway at, at the forum, you walk in the back door, you walk down this long hallway and you make a left into the locker room. And this was to the right and his desk would face the door. And every morning for four years, I said, good morning to him. He never said good morning back once. <laughs> I was brought up that way. I said, good morning, Pat, and keep walking. Not once. If he said it, he whispered it. <laughs> <laughs> but he used to, he was uh, funny because I was single in Montreal and he used to call my check in on me for curfew in Montreal. And he would call and I could hear a bar noise in the background. And it was before caller ID. And it was him out at a bar calling me at 10, 30, 11, or whatever time our curfew was to see if I was in. I mean, if you're going to go, if you're going to break curfew, you're not going to do it in Montreal because everybody there, even the blind man would recognize you. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't do anything in Montreal without people. I'll tell you what, what playing in Toronto, Montreal was fantastic. When I was there in Montreal, I tell people, this is what it's like to be a Montreal Canadian. Our backup goalie, Brian Hayward's in old Montreal having dinner with his wife. Across from him is Mick Jagger and somebody having dinner. And out of the kitchen comes the chef with a pad and paper, runs right at 
at Mick Jagger, turns his back to him, hands it to Brian Hayward and goes, can you give me your autograph, Mr. Hayward? He signs it, gives it to the chef. He turns his back to Mick Jagger and runs back in the kitchen. Mick Jagger goes, excuse me, excuse me, who are you? And he goes, hi, my name is Brian Hayward. This is my wife. And uh, he goes, what do you do? And he goes, I play for the Montreal Canadiens. He goes, I've been all over the world. That has never happened to me ever. I'm buying you dinner. Thank you very much. <laughs> that is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's like to be a Montreal Canadian. <laughs> Squid, you can't top that one, can you? No, I, I can't, but I can only imagine you win a Stanley Cup in Toronto. And I'm pretty sure that Toronto would be very, very similar if they could win a cup here this year, next year, maybe a couple in the next three or four years. Those guys will, won't be able to go to Toronto without anybody recognizing them. I would say no. Hockey that town. would probably be the case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look how famous all you guys are when you're there. I've seen it, Toronto. They they love love our Leafs, and they're they deserve a cup, and uh, hopefully they get one soon. But you're right, Squid. They, they the notoriety will be even tenfold what it already is. I mean, it's it's crazy when you go there now. People, I see what you know. You guys that live in the area. I mean, Wendell and yourself and Sit and Boria that. The, the treatment that you guys get without with, with not having won a cup, I can't imagine what it'll be when the guys do win one. Yeah, yeah now well, I was going to say the funny thing ahead, here, Fred. Russ, is our alumni has, has gotten so great here. I mean, yeah. we've got such a great tie in with the Maple Leafs and MLSE. We have our own suite on level 200 right behind the visitor's net, the food. I mean, it's so much has changed here. It's unbelievable. And we yeah. get treated so well, uh, our alumni, by MLSE. And they fund a lot, the box, and a lot of the things we do. So, I mean, it's incredible to be a, a Maple Leaf alumni in, in the Toronto area right now. Well, I was going to say, Russ, now you moved <laughs> off to you moved off to a couple different cities after Montreal, Dallas, uh, Vancouver, played in New York, L.A., just speak to some of the different experiences in each of those cities. Um, and particularly what I want to get to is some of the, you were very fortunate in your career to play some real leaders. Uh, you know, you, you started right off even in Toronto with Boria and even Squid and a couple of the guys, uh, Montreal, the Robinsons of the world. Then you get into Vancouver and Trevor Lindem and Pavel Burry and Alexander McGillney, then Gretzky Messier in New York. Uh, just how, I, I mean, you must have felt fairly fortunate to be in that type of surrounding that teams would want your services to play for them and you could help these teams. I was really fortunate, um, you know, going to New York and playing with Mark and Wayne and, and having a shot at, at winning there. We ran into some injuries and playing with my brother, Jeff in Vancouver, yes. which felt like our home. It feels like our hometown yeah. where we're from Victoria, but I really wanted to stay there. I didn't want to leave and nor did he, but Jeff, ended up going away for free agency to St. Louis. And then uh, I got traded uh, to New York, which was great. And then finishing off in LA where my wife's from uh, playing with uh, Rob Blake and Luke Robitaille was fantastic. And, and we'd played in, um, in some can for Canada a couple of times, played in the Canada cup together in world championships. But um, you know, I, I, I owe everything to hockey in my life and um, I'm blessed that I was able to play 
uh, in the NHL and to meet all these different people, both on and off the ice, to have that experience, every, every kid who plays laces up the skates to play hockey probably wants that experience. And I was fortunate to, to have it and then to play in such great cities. Um, I, was, I was just lucky uh, in that sense and fortunate. And, I, uh, and I'm blessed that uh, I, I, I had that opportunity and, and got to play. We'll talk about one of your other careers, the Battle of the Blades. Do you, do you miss these? Uh, oh, the Timmy's. <laughs> oh, God. I'm a Starbucks guy. Well, oh, you don't know Timmy's down there yet. You gotta, when you get back home, you'll see it. Yeah, now, yeah. talk about the Battle of the Blades. Like, uh, How tough was it with those picks on the front of the skates? And You must have almost killed yourself a couple of times. It took me 28 hours of public skating before I was comfortable and not falling on my face. And the reason I know it was 28, because I took my youngest daughter at the time and we'd go public skating and it was an hour to two hours. And we'd, we'd go to Simi Valley here in LA and skate around. And uh, it was, I when the first day I put those skates on, I went, what the hell have I got myself into? Uh, I couldn't even, it was like I'd never skated before. It was really, really hard. One of the hardest things and one of the best things I've ever done is learning to do that because I, I it was out of my comfort zone 1,000%. It was tough, but I had fun doing it. Um, you, played under, great at it. you played under a number of coaches over the years. Who had the biggest impact on you, not only as a player, but as a person? Or maybe there's a couple of them. Mine. And then uh, Barry McKenzie. And then the two best people I ever met in hockey were Sir Savard and Pat Quinn. And I, Pat, I only played, he coached me a little bit when he fired uh, Rick Lee. Um, Pat was a great coach. Uh, man's man, Sir Savard was a man's man. Like just when those guys, when they, when you got in shit from those guys that scared the crap out of you and they, and with, but they also put their hand on your back when you were playing well. There wasn't enough of that when Rick and I played of people saying you're doing a good job. I don't know what it's like today, but when we played, there wasn't enough. Of, I don't care how successful you are. You want to know you're doing a good job. They sure as hell tell you when you're not, but they never you're told not. us yeah. when we were. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Squid, you can fill in on that. Oh, I have to agree with you 100% on that, Ross, because like, yeah. I mean, you you heard it when you weren't playing well, but when you were doing well, there weren't too many guys coming and putting their hand on your back and saying, good job, kid, you know, way to go. Uh, for the most part, they wanted to stay. Well, part of it, too, was because the better you played, the more money you were going to demand in yeah. the next contract. And if yeah, you God forbid wrong, they ever say anything good, because then it'd hold, they'd hold, yeah. you know, your agent would hold it against them. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, and of course, working for one of the worst owners in the world in Harold, I mean, you knew you weren't going to get a whole lot of money out of him. So you knew that you weren't going to get a whole lot of praise in Toronto because that just means that he would have to pay you more. So he wasn't going to say good things. And he didn't hire anybody else that that were capable of saying good things (laughs) to you, I don't believe. Well, they're scared to because he would fire them if he said something nice about you. If there wasn't Harold Ballard, there would be no Timmy. So he put up all the money to uh, start Tim Hortons. I'm just reading that story now. And he actually gave yeah. him $25,000. He takes a lot of credit for it. 
Harold? I think he gave more than that because um, when when the girls, the mom and the, his ex or his yeah. widow were fighting over the estate, um, they had to pay off Harold. And my understanding from Harold was it was 450,000 and they, they sold their share for a million. So the girls split 550,000. But yeah, it's, who knows? Uh, yeah. Anyway, whatever the amount is, but Harold, Harold said, I was in his office. He goes, that's where Tim Hortons sat and told me the, about this future business, this future thing, this, and I lent him the money and he started Tim Hortons. But Her- Harold's an interesting guy. He, um, Every time I went to Vancouver or the team, he would pay for my parents' tickets. He'd pay for their hotel rooms and, and never say a word about it. Uh, Gord Stalk would say, Harold wanted to take care of your parents. So in some ways, he was really generous. But boy, oh boy, the worst contracts. Like trying to get mine, like Rick said, like the con, you just, you just knew everybody was underpaid. The only guy who was paid fairly was Boria. He got, mm-hmm. he was paid fairly, but everybody else was way behind the scale. And um, we, you know, it, it, when Calgary Flames, they all felt like they were well paid and they felt like they owed it to the team and they always played hard for the management and the owners. And they were, they'd always go to these PA meetings and go, we have no complaints because our team pays us well. Uh, Montreal Canadiens, you get there, everybody was paid well. And they always felt like they wanted to play hard. And all the other teams in the league were bitter. And they were bitter because, you know, we just, at that time, we just weren't, we had no leverage. And we kind of got paid what they wanted to pay us. So guys were, guys were naturally bitter. Speaking of Montreal, I, I believe at one point, I'm not sure when it started and when it ended, but if you played for the Montreal Canadiens, I think you had to play a certain amount of years there. If you retired there, they would pay you your last year's salary for one more year after you retired. And I, I can't remember when it started and when it ended. But I, I do know that they did that for a while. Larry Robinson... Instead of retiring and taking an, a, an extra year's pay, he went to L.A. and played. And Bob Ganey, mm-hmm. Ganey went to France and coached and played. And I think they, I, I think, I think, Bob, I'm not sure, but I remember, I remember that now that they would pay one year last year, they pay it again, your first year out of retirement. Yeah. Munch, Montreal was a classy organization, man. Going from Toronto to Montreal, what a difference. Oh, my God. It was, it was unbelievable. Like everything from the equipment all the way up to the top to travel. Like we go out west and we they fly us first class, business class. We it was unbelievable. I'd never been in a business wow. class seat before till I started playing for Montreal. Yeah, it was great organization. Well, there certainly was no damn business class in Toronto. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, never mind that. He took your per diem away from you guys. Well, he, what happened was our charters would leave at 735, I think it was, because if they left before 730, he had to pay you another third of a meal money or something. Anyway, I finally <laughs> went to Harold and said, Listen, Harold, like 
sometimes we're delayed and we're not getting in until 10, 10 30 at night. I said, can we leave at three or four and get in so that the guys can check into the hotel, go and have a nice dinner and get in at a reasonable time the night before a game. And I said, we won't even take any meal money. And he agreed to it. And I think we started leaving at three o'clock or yeah. three thirty. And then about a year later, all of a sudden he decided, okay, I'm going to pay you the PM anyway. And uh, which shocked the hell out of all of us, really. Yeah. He, well, um, Wendell Clark and I, I. Go ahead, go ahead, Russ. Well, w Wendell and I didn't have uh, debit cards or credit cards. <laughs> we just were cash, I think. I don't think we had a credit card. So uh, we'd be running out of money on the road and Harold would tell Gord Stellick, he goes, make sure you give those two an extra couple hundred bucks because they don't know, they don't, they're just sitting around the lobby. They got no money. They're freaking waiting for free game meal. And, and so Wendell and I would be looking for Gord Stellick on about the fifth day of a road trip. And just with that look on our face, he goes, how much do you guys need? And he'd pull out a bunch of cash he'd carry for Harold. And then Harold would never take it out of our paychecks. It was like stuff like that, you know, where he, he gave, but man, when you wanted a con, when it contract was like the worst word you could say in his office. <laughs> Contracts. <laughs> what contract? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you now you you've touched on uh, some of the guys that you've played with, some of the, the leaders that, that you've played with. And I, I'm sitting back now and you can reflect back. It's tough to pinpoint one guy, but what about what are some of the characteristics of some of those guys? I'm referring to the Messiers and Lindens and Gretzkys of the world that you played with and Robinson that sort of made them stand out from other players and gave them that leadership ability. <laughs> I think there's oh, there's lots of lots of examples. There's lots of examples of leadership. And I would say Wendell Clark never said a word in the locker room, but he led by mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to you know, he would get so many guys fired up on the bench that you'd have guys who were non-fighters like me and wanted to get in a scrap. Like, <laughs> and, and then you've got Marc Messier, who, when he didn't like something, shut the door, gave us all shit. And I'll never forget, we're playing Philadelphia. Uh, we're either playing New Jersey or Philly in, in the playoffs in New York. And, and we didn't have a good first period or something. And... You know how in warm-ups now, all the teams, the guys are warming up with the soccer ball? Yeah. Well, that just started mm -hmm. with a couple of the Swedish players on our team and the Russians, and they're out there. And he goes, we played like shit. We're not in this game. And you fucking guys out there bouncing that goddamn soccer ball around, your heads aren't in the game. <laughs> <laughs> and now every team's doing it. But that was new to, the, that was new to hockey. But Mark was one of those guys, when he spoke, everybody listened. Uh, Wayne Gretzky, led by example, didn't say a lot in the locker room. And then there was other guys that said shit that you were like, would that guy just shut up? You know, there was guys who wanted to be leaders that weren't leaders. I'm not going to mention names, but you'd be like, are you kidding me? You're a fifth line defenseman at best. Like, shut up. <laughs> uh, but... Um, the guy, leadership comes in all, you know, it comes in yep. different shapes and forms. And some guys, when they speak, like when Pat Quinn would raise his voice, everybody would go, oh, my God, okay, what do we need to do? Um, Mark Messier had that effect. And then other guys just led by example. I'd say Rick 
probably led more by example, you know, by his, how he played, he played the freaking same every night and he, and he'd go flying down that freaking wing and, you know, score half the time. And, and you know what, it was great to be around because he just, he just went hard every night, no matter where we were playing. And he, and, uh, so I'd say that that's an example of his leadership skills was just the way he played kind of like Wendell. Squid. And now, and now our two boys are playing against each other. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's funny, Mike, because we were just, uh, we were texting during the game the other night, they're playing. Well, my son's in Fort Wayne this year instead of Cincinnati and they're playing yeah. kneeling like, I don't know, 19 times, I think. And then Indianapolis 20, and they're only playing 50 games. And uh, anyway, we're texting each other during, <laughs> during the game. And it, it, was, it was quite nice, actually. It was, it was funny because uh, as soon as I saw his name, the first game they played them, which was their first game of the year, I, I, I said, it's got to be Russ's son. I said, or Jeff's, one or the other. I said, there's not that many portals in the world. And I said, so sure enough, I, I kind of looked everything up and it was Russ's son. And uh, that was pretty cool, actually. Pretty cool to see, uh, you know, to think back. What are we talking? Like 30, uh, 40 years, 40 yeah. years ago, we played together. Five, 30, 35 to 37 years. Yeah. God, fuck. For almost yeah. 40 years. She's a long time. Yeah, I know. And now our boys, now our boys are playing pro hockey at each other. And it's like, oh my God, like where the hell's the time gone? Well, wait, your grandkids are playing and against I, each other. And then you guys are really going to be feeling old. Okay. That'll yeah. be Yeah, but so, I, I don't know if that's gonna happen. Russ, we want to thank you for being with us for so long. Just a couple more minutes. We'll look for a couple of things here out of you just to close this off. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, especially because you're a fun guy. I would have to say, who is one of the funnier guys you played with over the years and maybe a good prankster? Well, my brother is probably the best prankster I played with. Uh, but Shane Churla and I had a good time. Shane and Shane and I, uh, he loved to have a good time. Great, great teammate and uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun to be around. Well, give us an example of one of the pranks. How about uh, we always look for the good ones? So we're, we're coming back maybe a little bit late after the bar in St. Louis. We're staying at the Omni Hotel. And Mike Badano and Brent Gilchrist are in the roommates. And Mike had just won 1200 bucks at the casino and didn't buy us drinks. So Shane's, <laughs> calling, Shane's like going, that freaking cheap bastard. So he goes, he grabs the fire extinguisher and he goes, knock on their door. So I knock on their door. And they open it, but they got the chain open. They're smart enough to have the chain on the door. And he sticks the fire extinguisher in there. And we'd never done this before. And he goes, <laughs> three blasts of this fire extinguisher. And we run down the hallway. Well, the door opens. It slams open. And they come rolling out into the hallway. And they're, they look like snowmen. They're completely covered in the the dust or whatever the crap is, the white stuff that comes out. And all you can see is the red from their mouths and their eyes and they're choking. <laughs> I guess what happens, that thing sucks all the oxygen out of the uh, room and that's how they put the fire out. And, and we didn't know this and we almost freaking killed them. <laughs> so that was, that was 
one that could have been tragic, but was really, really quite funny. <laughs> you got, got away with that one. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. They tried to, the hotel uh, tried to uh, charge us a one month rent of the hotel room while they redid the room. And uh, Charles said to uh, Doug Armstrong, who was the assistant GM negotiating with the hotel manager, he said, Doug, Army, just tell them we won't ever stay in the hotel again if they do this to us. And so Army goes, well, if you charge these guys for the room and us, we're never coming back. And the guy goes, okay, we'll take care of it. So Chuck and I ended up not getting fined for it. <laughs> Squid, that's one of the best that, ones we've heard is, so far. That's one of the better ones I've heard, for sure. Yeah, that's one of the better ones, that's for sure. And final question for both you guys here. Uh, here you go. You can jump in on this one, I said, Squid. Was there, actually, it's two parts. Number one, you mentioned already, Russ, about uh, Mike Keane, one, one of those underappreciated guys that you never really thought of uh, how good he was till you played with them. But is there anybody else that stood out with you that probably you thought, now this guy's a real ass to play against, but when you got in the room with and played with them, you realized what that guy really meant, and he was a much better person than which I actually expected him to be, and player. Yeah, I would go with, um, with uh, Claude. Oh, you knew you were going to say that, Peppy. Claude, yeah, Claude was, uh, he was a son of a bitch to play against, but a, a good teammate and, uh, and fun. He was, he was a lot of fun and emotional guy. And, and I don't know if I have another one that I, uh, uh, that I have, but, uh, but I'd, I'd go with Claude. Off the cuff, I'd go with Claude. For being a... I'm not sure uh, off the top of my head, I can't really think of uh, guys that, you hate to play against, but you'd love to have on your team. But the, the guy, I, again, I go back to him every single time uh, I answer this question is the most, I think the most underrated player in the National Hockey League was Steve Larmer. Uh, a guy who, as a point of game, played like 1,200 games or something, and he's not even in the Hall of Fame. And he won a Stanley Cup in New York. And, I mean, I, I played with him, so I, I – you know, I kind of know how he plays. I watched him play, played against him. And I'll tell you, he is a great all-around 200-foot player that probably didn't get uh, the amount of uh, accolades that he should have. Yeah. yeah, Probably four or five years before he needed to. I mean, he was still in his prime when, yeah. he, you know, when he's playing. And I'll to back up, so I love that about him should, should be in the Hall of Fame. The other guy to me is Neil Broughton. Neil brought and I played with yeah. Neil and he was a hundred point centerman. And then they said, okay, now we want you to be a defensive player, which he did won a Stanley cup played on the power play on the point, New Jersey, the guy's phenomenal. And those two players with the players that are getting in now, those two players deserve, in my opinion, to be in the hall of fame. Fantastic. Well, I couldn't see. agree with you more. I, I, uh, both of them. Well, Russ, we can't thank you enough. We've uh, taken up a lot of your time. Uh, been very enlightening, very funny, some great stories, uh, great reminiscing with you. And you got to get down to Toronto at one point and let Squid and I buy you lunch one day, maybe even play golf. All right. I love it. I love it. Thanks, right. guys. Thanks All for right, having me. Okay. Thanks, Russ. Okay. See you. Take care, Talk Russ. Talk to you soon. Take care. Well, Squid, another good guest. I would say Russ, he's one of the better ones we've had as far as like he was just getting. You know, you reminded me of Scott Gomez. So I heard Scotty Gomez on uh, one of the podcasts and he gets, he got more excited as he went along and the story started coming out fast and furious, but uh, what a character.
Oh, he certainly is. And uh, you know what? It's funny. I had a great shot with him the other night. And uh, like I said, our sons are playing against each other now. His son went to university on a hockey scholarship. His oldest daughter went to, I think, UCLA on a, on a soccer and track scholarship. And now his younger one's going to USC on the same thing, soccer and track. And I'm, I'm thinking, wow, they must be great athletes in, uh, in that family. And uh, just a great guy. And, and like I said, when I heard about that trade to Montreal and who it was for, I said, that's, a, that's typical growth. You get in on his bad side, uh, you know, you're done. Well, I do remember that period, and I remember that he had started off, and Wendell was having struggling along with injuries and stuff like that, but he took him away from him, and he's right. He put him in a position to fail. Yeah. And Russ was not an aggressive player, and he put him in a position where he wasn't going to have any success. And, you know, teams knew that, and they went after him, and they just, they just shut him down. He couldn't do it by himself. And it was, it was just one of those uh, things that happened, and the Leafs became known as – they were a good team at the time, but they needed some toughness and there was lots of stuff being thrown around. And of course, as the trade we know, tragically worked out bad for Cordic, but it was not uh, one of the better, uh, better deals in Leaf history, that's for sure. Well, and that was a typical growth move, though. I mean, if he didn't like it, he would put you on a, in, in a spot where you weren't going to succeed. And then, of course, when your numbers went down, um, you know, then they would say, well, he's not performing. And then he'd make a trade. Like it was no different in my situation with Chicago uh, when they brought back uh, Eddie Oldchuck and um, uh, the tough kid. Uh, Al Secord. Al Secord. And Al was at the end of his fighting career, really. He didn't want, really want to fight anymore. But Brof made that. He was coaching. He, made, he wanted that deal because – he wanted Seacourt's toughness. And, uh, you know, so uh, that was a typical John Brophy move, though. I mean, I saw him do it with Davey Gorman, who was a hell of a player. Uh, but he never – he wouldn't put him in positions to succeed. And, uh, and therefore, he, uh, you know, he ended up sitting him in the stands sometimes. So uh, when I heard that, I said, oh, my God, that's typical, typical growth. Yes, it is. Well, we, we want to thank Russ for joining us today. He was uh, very good. We, we do owe him a golf game and a lunch when he comes into Toronto. And I played golf with him years ago uh, at, at, at Sherwood in uh, California. And I'll tell you, it was sure, sure a treat playing golf with him. He was pretty funny. We played with Gretzky that uh, weekday also. So, was, But Russ is certainly a pretty fun guy. And he's just as you hear him on the podcast here with Full of Stories. So anyway, you want to thank you guys for listening again today. A couple of reminders for you. Uh, I think it's still available. I think Catch-22, the book is still, you can still buy it, I believe. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. joking, by the I was joking, by the way. Of course, you can't buy it. And you can still buy The Ultimate Road Trip. And I got one up on Squid here. I have two books, actually. Inside the Room with the Ultimate Lease Fan is also available. And you can find them. You can text either one of us and get them. You can find them at uh, Indigo, Walmart, Amazon. Or you can go to the new lease Stop setup. Mark, too. And what was Shoppers Drug And you can go to the new website, Rick Vibes website. There are going to be some surprises on there and lots of pictures, lots of information and stories. And you can go to our new website where you can find all our podcasts, Squidney Ultimately Fan, all 40 of them are on there. And you can listen to those, lots of stuff about previous events at our house, guests that have been there, lots of comments and videos. 
And Deb's done a terrific job on it. And I think you should have a look at it. You'll like it. Just ignore my picture, but you'll like the rest of it. So anyway, we want to thank you guys again for listening. Tune in again next week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. And we'll talk to you guys next week.